Well, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in life and in death. For it is Christ's death alone that makes one right and accepted before you. And it is the resurrection of Christ alone that makes a night like this have any eternal value at all. So, Father, since our life is brief, and since your judgment is real, come in power and come in mercy as your son Jesus is preached and presented as the only one who can save us from our sin. And so, Father, it is for his sake and for your glory that I ask these things. Amen. So just hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now, Jesus declared, and leave your life of sin. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this evening. Now, my wife and I, early next year, will be celebrating 25 years of marriage. And personally, I hope that we make it. <clears throat> because one, I really like her. And two, we do just about everything together, which you can imagine is an absolute royal pain in the neck for her, for those of you that know me. But anyway, both of us really like this account from John's Gospel in chapter 8 because it's one of those true stories that absolutely stick. And even people who never read much of the Bible, they tend to know and they tend to like the story because it's one of those stories that, that most people want to believe is true because it deals with you know, the cruddiness of religious hypocrites and it deals with the victim of those religious hypocrites. Now... A while back, a gentleman named Rico Tice told the story of when he told his father that he wanted to become an ordained minister. His father, who wasn't a Christian at the time, responded to him very quietly. Listen to what he said. He said, Oh, Rico, I went on business trips with men who went from the brothel to church. I didn't go to the brothel with them, and I didn't go to church with them either. I don't know why you're getting involved with these people. They are disgusting. So Rico's dad was a victim of religious hypocrisy. Uh, religious hypocrisy is essentially living a lie. So in the Greek, the language of the New Testament, the word hypocrisy means wearing a mask. It was a, a word used to describe actors at that time who would more, wear a mask to play a part in the theater. So the word hypocrite means this is someone who plays a part in public, 
But what they really are on the inside is not true. So their inner life and their inner desires and their internal motives was completely different than the show that they were putting on outside. So they would be some kind of person on the outside in public, but they would be a far different person on the inside. In essence, they wore a mask. So Rico's dad would watch these religious, womanizing business colleagues of his arrive back at the airport with him from business trips, and their family would be there, and it would be, the kids would be um, waiting for their father with open arms, and it would seem nice on the outside, but on the inside, it was a big, fat lie. And it made his stomach turn because he remembered seeing them coming out of the brothel. So hypocrisy is horrible. And if you've ever been the victim of religious hypocrisy, and I'm sure there's someone here that has, then I want to tell you first, I'm very, very sorry. And second, I want you to know that Jesus is with you. Jesus cannot stand religious hypocrites. Like Jesus, many people then can't stand a Bible-carrying, finger-pointing, religious person self-righteously accusing others of sin all the time. In fact, if you like that, then you'll love this story. Because this story teaches, and I want you to listen carefully, this story teaches us that a Bible-reading, moral-living, finger-pointing, church-going person can be further from Jesus, believe it or not, than this adulterous woman. And of course, the hypocrite who wants to be first and best by tearing others down, they can't stand this. So just a bit of background first. The crowds are ready to learn. Verse 2 tells us it's really early in the morning and people are at the temple and they're ready to learn from Jesus. The day before at a a holy feast, kind of like this one, Jesus told the crowds, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone wants something more than a dead religion or tired tradition, and they were thirsty for real spiritual reality, then they should come to him. And the next morning they did. And so the whole thing's off to a great start. Jesus takes the first available moment at dawn after the feast to keep his promise and teach those people who are thirsty. And by the way, this comes to mind. We'll be doing this at 9 and 10.30 tomorrow morning. We'll have a church service in here at 9 o'clock and we'll have another one here at 10.30. And if you don't have a church, you're invited. That was a commercial. I didn't mean to say that, but I thought it fit the text. Okay, so then, just as things are getting underway, in comes a major interruption by none other than the moral majority, right? Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. So the language that's being used here by John, the writer of the gospel, tells us that the men basically dragged the woman right in the middle of the act, and they took her to the teaching venue, and they throw her right in front of Jesus. So, so we'll just have three headings to kind of help us know when we're done. The first heading is the poor woman. So, so let me ask you a question. What do you think this woman is feeling right now as she's being pushed and thrown in, in front of the crowds by these religious leaders or by these religious leaders? How do you think she's feeling? Caught, grabbed, taken, dragged, and tossed right into a crowd of people in, in, in just moments. So how do you think she's feeling? Especially in light of the fact that the guys who were doing this are supposed to be holy men, right? These are supposed to be men of piety, Bible-carrying, close-to-God religious men who allegedly represent God. And if you're thinking here, if God wants to forgive people and he wants to reconcile people, how do you think that's going right now? Right? That's our first point, the poor woman. Second point, the bad men. So John was clear. I mean, you heard me read it. They didn't give a rip about the woman. They didn't give a rip about God's law. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about making the community better. No, they just want to use that woman in her sin 
and use the law of God to try and trap Jesus so that they can accuse him. Okay, accuse him to who? Well, this is part of their clever little trap. And on one level, it is kind of clever. Because it seemed like whatever side Jesus goes on about, he's in trouble, right? If he goes one way, it seems like he's in trouble. If he goes another, he seems like he's in trouble. The law of Moses in the Old Testament said, Deuteronomy 22:13, the sin of adultery was punishable by death. However, and listen very carefully because you'll learn a bit about the Old Testament and help you to understand it better if you listen. See, they were no longer a sovereign country as they once were at the time of the Old Testament writing. They were now occupied country by the Roman authorities. And Roman law gave them no power, the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders, to pass down or carry out a death sentence on anyone, which is why they had to take Jesus to Pilate. Okay, so if Jesus said stone her, the hypocrites could justifiably take Jesus right to the Roman authorities because only the Roman authorities can execute capital punishment. But not only this, Jesus' reputation was that he was a friend of sinners. So let's say he says throw the stones at her, then obviously no longer he's a friend of sinners because he gave the all clear for this woman to be stoned to her death. Okay, that's one side. The other side is if Jesus said, let her go, let her go, then he would be perceived as a lawbreaker, right? The Messiah who was coming, he was God's promised king, and he would uphold God's law because the law of God reflects the character of God. God is holy, his law is holy, therefore adultery is unholy. So I hope you see the trap. Whatever Jesus says in the minds of these hypocrites, he's trapped. But here's the thing, right? They don't care about God. They don't care about the law of God because they're hypocrites. If you really cared about the law of God and justice and morality and truth, then the big question is, where's the man? Right? You ladies probably picked this up. Where is the man? She was caught in the very act of adultery, and I'm old enough to know that it takes two to tango. Okay, so where's the man? You see, the law of God and the justice it brought was supposed to be impartial. Justice was blind. You can't favor a man over a woman, which is what they did. They were supposed to be together. But these men don't care because they're hypocrites. They, they don't care about the law. They want Jesus dead, and they're using this poor woman. Let me just give you one little quote about the Pharisees. The Pharisees wrapped their sin in respectability. They made themselves appear good by publicly doing good deeds and pointing out the sins of others. I have in my notes... They're the aha people. Do you know these people? Right? Aha! I caught you. Right? Okay, you caught me, but don't you want to help me? Aha! I caught you. Okay, but will you show me some mercy? So at this point, I have to confess something that I find it super easy to uh, put myself in this woman's shoes. I can imagine my whole world falling apart very easily by doing something really, really stupid. So I know that I'm capable of this foolishness, which is one of the reasons why I became a Christian. Because I knew my heart was untrustworthy. So on one level, I can feel this woman's pain, and I can feel the tension in her consequence. But what's also interesting is that I can also identify with these hard-hearted, self-righteous, hypocritical, always-accusing Pharisees, right? I mean, maybe you know the people who talk at the TV, right? So the news is on or whatever, and they're like, I can't believe they did that. I never in my life, I never thought I'd see the day. How could they, right? Just always complaining, always arguing, always trying to present themselves as better than the people on the other side 
of the screen. But here's the thing. When it comes to the heart and love of Jesus, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. What would it be like to never have sinned? To never have gossiped? To never have lusted? What would, he, what would it be like to never have been secretly happy about another person's misfortune? What would it be like never to be filled with rage or jealousy or envy? What would it be like to love my neighbor perfectly just like I would love myself? I don't know. I don't know. First point, poor woman. Second point, bad men. Final point, only Savior. So their question comes, okay, what do you say, Jesus? The woman's in front of Jesus, and Jesus begins to look down, and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, here's the neat thing. The word that John uses in the Greek to describe what Jesus was doing was not the normal word that you would use for writing. It was a word that actually could mean to write down a record against someone. So Jesus bends down, he begins to write in the ground, and maybe he's writing out all their sins. And they won't let up. They keep badgering Jesus like a two-year-old, right? Come on, Jesus. What's your answer? What's your answer? What's your answer? But in just one sentence, in one sentence, Jesus exposes the religious hypocrites. One sentence, verse 7. Anyone without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, right? And the whole world gets quiet, or at least it should. At least it should. Anyone without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone. And though Jesus gets stoops down again, he writes on the ground again, and everyone begins to leave. And as you notice, it was the older people first. The older people first. So no one's there. No one's there because everyone's a sinner. Now I hope that God would help us grasp the magnitude of what was just said. Everyone is gone. Everyone's gone. It's only Jesus and the woman. And so as is so often in the case with Jesus, he begins to give the truth on an individual with a question. Verse 10, where are they? That's what he asked. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Right? So put yourself in her shoes. A few minutes ago, she's in bed with another man. Then she's dragged in under the threat of death, used as a prop by these religious hypocrites. Jesus writes on the ground with his finger and says with his mouth, anyone who has sinned, Okay, throw stones, everybody goes one at a time away. And so he says to her, where are you, where are your accusers? Now I want you to be in no doubt, she's still guilty. She's still guilty of the sin of adultery. However, the only person in the entire universe who has the right to accuse her, who is sinless, and therefore has the right to condemn her, is looking at her with no stones in his hands. So that's the height of irony, right? Jesus said, if there's anyone who's without sin, let them be the first to throw a stone. Well, the one person without any sin who could rightly execute judgment isn't prepared to throw anything at her except grace. Except forgiveness. So Jesus looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And, and these words, if you're going to be honest tonight, if you're going to be honest... We all have those dark rooms in our life, beginning with myself. We have those dark rooms. They're our secret rooms. We keep things hidden, locked up. We don't want anybody to know things we've done, things we thought, things we said, things that if it got out, holy cow, 
How embarrassing. Secrets. And if you're honest in, about your humanity, then these words of Jesus, neither do I condemn you, those are words of monumental liberation. But, and listen carefully, if you're not honest, and if you're going to play the game, then these words of Jesus, they'll just fall at your feet, and they'll just fizzle away. Which is why Jesus said in the other chapter, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. You see, that's the thirst. Jesus says our thirst is the need for our sins to be forgiven. That's the thirst. And again, if we're honest, if we take responsibility about what we've done or left undone or what we treated others or how we treated others or how we treated God or the horrible thoughts we've had, Jesus' words here can be liberating because our guilt is real. You guys, the reason why we feel guilty is because we are guilty. And if you're the victim of forces that rightly condemn you, then is it not a mercy to hear Jesus Christ say, I do not condemn you? But the question that needs to be answered is, okay, that's nice, Jesus, but how can you say that? Right? Are these just magic words? Is Jesus, you know, just being super nice and super lenient, and so he's just going to give her a pass? How can Jesus say this? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's because the, the, the heart of the Gospel of John and the heart of the ministry of Jesus, and the heart of his message, and the reason behind his death is that Jesus came to put himself between the woman and the punishment that she did rightly deserve. It will cost Jesus dearly to say to her, neither do I condemn her. She, she, she knows this. Christ sweats blood for these words, as it said in the garden. What did he say to his father? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath on all our wrongdoings. He will drink it up completely as he dies on the cross. So again, these are not easy words, neither do I condemn you. They're written in blood. Christ will die for these words. I won't condemn you because on the cross, I will take the condemnation for you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Christianity. So yes, stones will be thrown. Spears are to be hurled into the side. Someone has to die. But Jesus says, the stones will hit me. The spear will be launched in my side. Thorns ought to be brought down, but they'll come down on my skull. I will die for you. I will die for you. So sister, you're free. You're free. The only way you could ever be free, the only way anyone in this room and on this planet can be free Sister, you are free because I, Jesus, will take your punishment on the cross. And at the end of it all, Christ will cry out on that cross, it's finished, it's paid, it's done. Grace can now be given. Grace can be given, but at a great, great cost. So you see, I want you to see this. Jesus is not overlooking her sin. No, but he could forgive her. Because he knew he came to pay the, this debt of sin. And the cross will happen, by the way, very close to where Jesus and this woman is having their conversation. Let me just say one more thing. It stands to reason that when someone has saved your life, like Jesus saved this woman's life, when someone has saved you from religious hypocrites, and this same person is prepared to die for you so that your sins can be forgiven... When all those things are done for you, then it's pretty easy to hear the rest of his words. Verse 11, go now and lead your life of sin. Right? Because don't you think you can trust him to know what's best for you after all those things he's done for you? 
Can't you trust him to know what's best? Sin is toxic. Leave it. Leave it before it destroys you. And if you remain unrepentant in your sin, that on judgment day, what Jesus said is a real day coming, unrepented sin will take you to hell. So let me close with this. It's a simple question. Have you turned to God in repentance? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that was presented to you from John chapter 8? Have you? Do you you know the Jesus that I spent the last 15-ish minutes talking about? The woman was saved from sin's penalty the only way she could be by the grace of her Lord Jesus Christ. So the only question that I have then, have you been saved the only way that you could be by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, a grace that says, verse 11, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, please think this out. Please answer soon. Uh, Don't keep putting it off if you're like that. Decide, even now, because there is a time coming. There's a time coming when it will be too late. So don't wait. Thank you for your attention. If you would, let's bow and pray. Father, your son has been preached. Now come in power and do what you alone can do and awaken us for our great need to repent and believe on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for this people. Thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.